scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. In the Pew Bible, that is page 1016. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But, every, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But if your hearts honor Christ, the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for good, for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Our lesson is going to come from this passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 8 and look at the passage from verse 8 to verse 17 together. Last week we began a series on Sunday mornings entitled Cultural Intelligence. And the reason for this series is because more and more it seems that Christians are being put on the spot, that Christians are being put into challenging situations. It happens at school for our young people. It happens for our college age people when they go away to college. It happens in the workplace for many of us. It happens with our friends. How do you feel about a certain issue or how do you feel about a certain topic? the way you answer as a Christian can sometimes put you in a very difficult situation, put you in a very difficult circumstance. And the question that we're wanting to answer with this series is, how can we, the people of God, make the right kind of difference in the world around us? How can college age young people make the right kind of difference where they are? And how can people in the workplace make the right kind of difference? It's not hard to make a difference. But the difference you may make is not necessarily the right kind of difference. It wouldn't be hard to put up a fight and start a fuss and start an argument. Wouldn't be hard to make a difference, but making the right kind of difference. That's the challenge for the sake of God and for the sake of his glory. And because that's our, our, our goal and our mission as Christians, we want to make an impact on the people around us. We must open the scriptures and we must listen to how God tells us to conduct ourselves. And most of what he says to us is counterintuitive. Most of what he says to us about making an impact is the reverse of what we would ordinarily think we should do. But because we love Jesus, because we want to serve Almighty God, the way we respond to the challenges of our culture is different than what we might otherwise do. That's why we need to study God's word. How can we respond to our culture, respond to the people around us in an intelligent and an appropriate way. 
Last week, our study dealt with being useful to God, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And the message of that passage is that God has sent you. You may be the only Bible some people ever read. You have people in your life right now that only you may be the influence that God wants to have in their lives. You may be the exclusive person that can have an impact and make a difference in them. And therefore, don't shy away from being the light of the world. Don't shy away from being the salt of the earth. Rather, be useful and realize that God has sent you into a lost and dying world. This morning, as we look at 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to talk about being prepared because God warns us in this passage, we may well face resistance. And then next time, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about being hopeful because when we start to strive to make an impact on people around us, the goal that we would have, that people who serve Jesus would have is, I want the people around me to be saved. I want them to come to know the joy of salvation that I already know because I'm a Christian. And so I want to be hopeful. I don't want to give up on people and I don't want to write them off and say, well, that person would never obey the gospel. I want to be hopeful in the way that I treat the people around me. Who knows what God can do if we'll just faithfully be the kind of influence and example he wants us to be. With all that in mind, look at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. And when I look at this passage, 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 17, I want us to notice preliminarily a couple of items from this text. I want us to notice that there are two situations in mind here. In verses 8 through 13, Peter is describing to us the ordinary state of affairs in life. In the ordinary state of affairs in life, it goes like this. People who do right and people who do good are rewarded. There are blessings and benefits that come when you do the right thing. And people who do wrong ordinarily are punished. Ordinarily, that's the way life works. And so as you look at verses eight through 13, he describes the ordinary circumstance of life where if you'll just serve Jesus and it's not necessarily intuitive, but if you'll do these things, ordinarily people who do the right thing are blessed. There are blessings and rewards that come from doing life God's way. But then starting in verse 14, he turns it around and he says, but there are some unusual situations. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen to all of us sometimes where Those people that do what is right and what is good are punished. They face affliction. They face the fires of difficulty because they're doing the right thing. And on the other hand, people that are doing the wrong thing are rewarded. And so in verses 14 through 18 or 14 through 17 of 1 Peter chapter 3, he deals with that situation. And notice at the end, in verse 17, he sums this up with an underlying principle. He says to you as a Christian, in 1 Peter 3, 17, it is better for you if you're going to suffer, it's better for you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. In other words, brothers and sisters and friends, the goal of life is not to avoid all conflict, The goal of life is not to avoid all difficulty and all confrontation. The goal of life is to do good. And if it should be God's will that we suffer for doing good, that can be a good thing for us and for others. That's the message of this passage. With that in mind, let's consider both of those situations in turn. 
Look first of all at 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 13. In ordinary circumstances, and let's read the passage together. Listen to what the Bible says. Finally, all of you, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. You know why he says finally all of you? Because back in chapter 2, he was talking to servants. And then as chapter 3 began, he was talking to wives. And then in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands. So he's been talking to servants, and then he's talking to wives in the church, and then he's talking to husbands in the church. And now he says in verse 8, all of you, all of you who are Christians, I'm speaking to all of you. And so as you continue in verse 8, he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and now he's going to quote from Psalm chapter 34. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, ordinary circumstances, whoever desires this, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? In ordinary circumstances then, what he does in this passage is first of all, to give us some essentials for doing what is good. And the emphasis of the passage for Christians is this, Christians are saved to be do-gooders. We are saved to do good to those around us, to do good in the world. That's the reason why God has saved us from our sins, so that we could live and serve and do good to the people around us. Who's going to harm you if you're zealous for what is good, he asks in verse 13. Be zealous for what's good. That's the point. But notice the essentials, and there are four of these as you look at the text. Essential number one, if you want to do good in the world, in ordinary circumstances as a Christian, if you want to do good, be humble and compassionate. Be humble and compassionate. Look at verse 8 again. All those descriptive terms in verse 8 deal with humility and self-forgetfulness and thinking of others. Be of one mind, united in your mind. Have sympathy, have brotherly love, have a tender heart, have humility. All of those things are characteristic of someone who is a Christian. We're not proud and arrogant and puffed up and I know better than you and that's not the way we treat other people. The way we treat other people in ordinary circumstances is to think of others first. I've been listening to a lot of books on audio recently. It's just a phase I'm going through. I do these kinds of things. I listen to the book, Good to Great. It's a business book if you've never heard of it recently. But one of the things that book pointed out was as they examined great companies over the ages or over the years, one of the things they noticed about the leaders in really great companies is that they had ambition and they had drive and they had a vision of what the company needed to be. But every one of those great leaders was humble. Every one of those great leaders in those great companies would give credit to others first. And when there was something wrong in the company, they would take responsibility first. And the book pointed out that 
It's just, it's part of their research. This is what made a great leader. And the Bible has been saying this for 2,000 years. It says, here's how you treat people. You be humble, you be compassionate. You think about other people before you think about yourself. And that's going to, in ordinary circumstances, that's gonna work out really well. What employer wouldn't want an employee like that? In ordinary circumstances, this is great. Secondly, essential for doing good, you must show mercy. You must be merciful. You know, when somebody is, is, is slighted or mistreated or there's something difficult that happens, look at verse nine. There's a tendency to want to lash out and to get revenge, but it says in verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You wanna be God's man, God's woman. In ordinary circumstances, you treat people better than they deserve. That's what mercy is. And so God says, you be humble and compassionate, you be merciful, treat people better than they deserve. And then number three, you wanna be God's man, God's woman, in ordinary circumstances, you find ways to bless other people. Look at verse nine again. On the contrary, bless. To bless somebody means that you communicate something to them by your words and your actions. By your words and by your actions, you communicate to them that you care about them, that they have value, that you see them and that you respect them, even when they're mistreating you. To bless somebody means that I want people to know that I care. And the Bible says, instead of reviling and and returning evil for evil, you be a person who blesses. In ordinary circumstances, this is how God wants us to live. It's an essential for doing good. And essential number four is this. Look at verse 11. Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. I want you to listen to me, Christians. You wanna be culturally intelligent? You want to have the right kind of impact on the people around you? Do not be a pot stirrer. You know what I mean by that? Pot stirrer. Somebody who always has to stir things up. Somebody who always has to throw out an objection or an argument to to keep people upset. And some people are that way and you're just not happy unless there's some kind of disagreement going on. That's not the way Christians live. That's not what God has called us to do. You wanna make the right kind of impact on the world around you? Seek peace. At the end of verse 11, he tells you that's exactly what Jesus has called us to do, to be peacemakers to seek peace and to pursue it with all of our hearts. Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew chapter five, verse nine. And so in ordinary circumstances, you've got somebody who wants to bless others, they're merciful, they treat people better than they deserve, they're humble, they're compassionate, and they seek peace. In ordinary circumstances, those kinds of people are blessed, the Bible says. You want to love life, see good days, verse 10, live this way. And the justification for this then, secondly, the basis for doing all this, it's found in three places in this passage. In verse 9, it says, when you live this way, you yourself will be blessed. God finds ways to bless people who live for him even when it's difficult Even when it's counterintuitive, God finds ways to bless people. We believe that God's way is the best way. 
And then when you look at verse 12, watch this. It's very profound, but it brings God's attitude toward the world and toward us into the picture. It talks about God's eyes and it talks about God's ears and it talks about God's face in verse 12. Do you see that? It says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. He's watching you. And it's, he's watching you in a good way for good reasons. His eyes are upon you. His ears are attentive to your prayers. And so as you live your life and you're striving to be merciful and compassionate and a peacemaker and you're striving to bless other people, God says, I care about you. My eyes are upon you. My ears are open to your prayers and my face is against those who do evil. That's God's demeanor. And it may not always seem like that in the world we live in, but that's the way God says his posture and his attitude are toward both those who do good and those who do evil. So that's justification number two. And then when you look at verse 13, there's just the, there's the argument from common sense. In verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? We might say it this way. The Bible teaches us to be good citizens, to respect the government, to pay taxes. Most governments are not gonna have a big problem with that teaching, right? Be good citizens, respect those who are in authority and pay your taxes. Most governments obey the laws. Most governments are not gonna have a problem. Who's gonna persecute somebody if that's what they're zealous for, doing what's good? In most families, think about this. I know some of you have trouble in your family. I know there are people that you live with that kind of antagonize you and nitpick and, and say things that are, that are kind of hostile and maybe veiled, kind of passive aggressive to you because of the fact that you're a Christian. I know that happens, but in most families, in most circumstances, somebody who is humble and compassionate and merciful and somebody who is seeking to bless others and to be a peacemaker in most families, Who's really going to stir up a fuss about that? That's his point. It's common sense. If you live this way, God says, who's going to harm you? This is the way God has called us to live. To this you were called, verse 9. This is what he's done for us and what he's called us to be as Christians. In ordinary circumstances, most of the time, People are not going to bother you and are not going to persecute you just because you're living the Christian life most of the time. That's what these verses are saying. Who is there to persecute or bother you if you're zealous for what's good? But then, starting in verse 14, he turns it around. There are unusual circumstances. Let's read verses 14 through 17 together as we did in the first part. Beginning in verse 14, he says, 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, let me just stop right there. In verse 14, when he brings up that even if you should, there is a Greek construction there that means this is unlikely, but possible. So the Greek construction is, even if you should, this is unlikely. Most of the time, this is not going to happen, but if it does, when it does, here's how you act. So even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, verse 14, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You're not a pot stirrer, you're not trying to cause arguments. 
He goes on and says in verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. God says to you and he says to me, there will, there may come a time in your life when you're doing what's good, you're doing what's right and you suffer. The normal order of things is inverted. It's, it's backward. Those who do good are punished and those who do evil are rewarded. I've been reading here recently a lot of, a lot of history. I read a history book recently about the, the construction and the, how they put together the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Just a subject that fascinates me, I know I'm strange. But one of the passages in that book, and it, it was fascinating as a study, how did they get to the point where they were murdering people systematically? The Nazi guards, the SS guards that oversaw those camps early on, they wanted some vicious guards. They wanted people that were brutal and had no compunction and no remorse. And in the book, there's a passage that I highlighted because it said there were some guards early on who had a conscience and they said, we're not gonna murder people. These are human beings, I don't care what you guys say, we're not gonna do this. And so the system, what it did was it humiliated those guards. It called them, you know, they're, they're not really manly. They're not really up to, up to par. They're not like the rest of us. And the book goes on to say that that was a very effective way to get those guards that were reticent and said, we wanna do the right thing, instead to start murdering other people. And the book says that they cared more about the shame that they experienced as a result of doing the right thing. They cared more about that shame than they did about murdering other human beings and that's why they became what they were. Sometimes in life there are unusual circumstances where everything is turned on its head and what is right is now looked on as wrong and what is wrong is now looked on as right. In Isaiah 5 verse 20, Isaiah said, woe unto those who call good evil and evil good. Sometimes it happens on a societal scale as it did in Nazi Germany. Sometimes it just happens on a local scale. Maybe it's just what's happening in your office or maybe it's just what's happening in a certain class that you're taking in school or maybe it's just what happens in a certain conversation that you're having with your friends but right is wrong and wrong is right and everything's upside down now what do you do now what does God want us to do when those unusual circumstances happen and you can see that making the right choice and doing the right thing is going to cost you personally it's going to make you suffer personally then what do you do by faith we believe that what God says is right in this passage we believe as Christians that God's word has power and that if we do what he says, that his will will be done. By faith, we believe the following then. As you look at verses 14 through 17, number one, by faith, we believe that it is a blessing even if we suffer for doing what is right. You see that in verse 14? Even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Do not be afraid, don't panic, don't, don't worry. There's a blessing even in this. And somebody says, well, that's really strange because in verse 13, he's just telling us, nobody's gonna bother you. I mean, who's, who's really gonna have a problem if you're doing the right thing, the good thing? And then on the other hand, in the very next verse, he says, but even if you should, you're gonna be blessed. What kind of blessing does Peter have in mind? Think about this. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Very similar to what Peter says here. He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for two reasons. Number one, for great is your reward in heaven. And number two, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's how Jesus responds and talks about blessing. He says, if you suffer for the right thing, you can rejoice because there's blessing in this. In Acts 5, verse 41 and 42, apostles were beaten and they were commanded not to speak anymore in the name of the Lord. And the Bible says that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And so there are some times in your life and mine when you're going to be put on the spot and doing the right thing is going to cost you. It's going to be punished. Somehow there's going to be a consequence for you. You do the right thing because you believe by faith. It's a blessing if I suffer for doing right. I'm going to be like the prophets before me. I'm going to have a great reward in heaven. And I may have a chance to make an impact on the people around me right now. Secondly, as you look at this passage, we believe by faith that pleasing Christ the Lord is always, always the best thing to do. Sanctify the Lord God or sanctify Jesus Christ, some translations have, in your hearts. Or if you've got the ESV, in your hearts, treat or, or set apart Christ the Lord as holy. What does that mean? It means, folks, that you personally have to decide who you're gonna, uh, you're gonna live for and who you're gonna try to please. You personally, I cannot sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart for you, and you can't do it for me. I remember years ago when I left home for college for the first time. For the first time in my life, I was away from my parental authority. I was away from my family, from my church family. For the first time in my life, I was in a strange environment, and there were all kinds of temptations almost on a daily basis. I had, and you have to, make the decision in times like that, who am I really going to try to please? Because the people around me are saying that doing wrong is right. And if I don't do the wrong thing, then I'm going to be ostracized and cast out. And I've got to decide I'm going to set apart Jesus in my heart as holy. You've got to decide that too. I know we've got a lot of college young people home. One of the reasons I'm bringing that up. You have to make the decision on your own in your heart that you're going to set Jesus apart as Lord, as holy. He's separate. He's Lord. He's the authority of my life. I'm going to live for him, not anybody else. And that's the decision you have to make. You have to do that before the temptation comes. You have to do that before you get to a time when, you know, it's going to be costly if I do the right thing here. Set apart Jesus in your heart as holy, sanctify him. Pleasing Jesus is always best. I'm not living to please other people. I'm not living to please that my friends or my, my coworkers. He's the one I'm gonna live for. And then look at the latter part of verse 15. It says, always being ready to give a reason, a defense, an apologia for the hope that is in you. Look at verse 15 very carefully. It does not say that you and I have to have a reasoned response for every Bible question somebody might ask. It does not say that. Somebody asks, you know, well, 
well, where, where did Adam, you know, where did Cain get his wife? And they start asking all kinds of silly Bible questions and, that, you know, they're just trying to test you and antagonize you and you think, well, I've got to have a good reason for that. Or somebody asks you, well, where does it say that I need to be baptized? It would be really good for you to have an answer to that question. But that's not necessarily what this passage is telling us to do. What this passage is telling us to do is just this. When you decide you're going to do the right thing and it's costly, and people see how much it's costing you, somebody's gonna ask you a question about your hope. Why, why would you decide that this is the right choice? Why would you do this? And then the answer that you must give has to do with the hope that is in you. Do you know what the hope is specifically in 1 Peter 3.15? Look at the passage. What is the hope? The hope is that Christ is my Lord. That's the hope that's in me. The fact that Jesus is my Lord. He died for me. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He's the one that can pay the price for my sins. And he is my authority. He's the one that has commanded me. He's the one that has said to me, this is wrong and I can't participate in this. This is why I do what I do. Because I'm a Christian. Because I serve Jesus Christ. Because I live for him. And I want to be with him forever. That's my hope. I want to go and be with him for all of eternity. I want to be able to give an answer, a response, a defense, an apology for the hope that is in me. The message of this passage is that your hope that you have in Jesus, it shines brightest, not just because you're nice to other people. The hope that you have shines brightest when other people aren't nice to you and you keep on doing the right thing. When you suffer. And God can take, and he does take, those instances and those circumstances, and God uses those to make, listen to me, an impact on the people around you. And guess what? It is highly, highly uncomfortable for you. But you've sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart, and you've, you've got yourself ready, and there's going to be an opportunity, and somebody's going to say, why would you do this? Why would you live this way? the hope that's in me, that's why. Brothers and sisters and friends, the Bible commands us to get ready for times like this. And it's saying to us, there may well be an opportunity to have a conversation with somebody about your hope, not because you did what was, you know, not because you were nice to somebody or blessed somebody, but because you suffered for doing what's good. That might open a door that wasn't otherwise open. And when you do give this defense, when you do give this answer, look at the end of the verse, it says, do it with gentleness and respect. Because that goes back to verse eight, be humble, be sympathetic, be compassionate, think about others. Don't return evil for evil, reviling for reviling, verse nine, don't do those things. But with gentleness and compassion and respect, give an answer for the hope that's in you. And then by faith, we believe this, look at verse 16. A good conscience can be a powerful influence. A good conscience can be a powerful influence. Your conscience is your awareness of what's right and wrong. Your conscience can be misguided, it can be misinformed, but we're supposed to listen to our consciences as Christians because our consciences are warning devices telling us, hey, something's about to be wrong here. If you do this, you're gonna be sinning, you're gonna be doing the wrong thing, John. And so it says, you make sure, John, that you keep a good conscience. 
So you wake up in the morning in your house, or maybe it's your dorm, or maybe your, you know, maybe your, uh, your, your work has scheduled an event for Sunday morning, and you say to your boss, or you say to the people in your dorm, I can't participate in what's going on Sunday morning because I have somewhere to be. And people start saying, well, you're going to miss out. I don't know if we're going to be able to advance you in your career. If you, if you go through with this, if, you, if you're not here for this, whatever the event is on, on Sunday morning, if you're not there, I, I just don't know if you're really serious about your role in this company. People may say something like that. What do you do with your conscience? Your conscience is telling you Christians gather for worship on Sunday. The first day of the week, Christians gather for worship. Can I say this again? I said it last week. Brothers and sisters and friends, one of the clearest ways you identify yourself as a Christian is by assembling with other Christians. One of the absolute clearest ways, your family knows who you are, your coworkers know who you are, your friends and your classmates in college know who you are because you identify with other Christians by assembling with them. And so, You've got this crisis, Sunday morning is coming, what am I gonna do? Keep a good conscience, that's what you do. Your conscience tells you, get up, put on your clothes, go worship with the saints. And whatever the consequences are, those are the consequences, you're blessed for doing this. That's what it's saying. And when you keep a good conscience, which is hard to do, when you keep a good conscience, then, People are still going to slander you. Look at the latter part of verse 16. But those who slander you, it says, will be put to shame. And somebody says, well, how is that, that going to happen? How are they put to shame? It may happen in this world, but it will definitely happen in the next. Those who slander you will be put to shame. They were trying to convince you to do the wrong thing, to do the evil thing, to do the upside down thing. And yet they're going to be ashamed. In unusual circumstances... You've got to, by faith, you've got to say, I'm going to do things God's way. I know this is going to hurt. I know this is going to be costly, but I believe that God's way is right. And can I remind you for a moment who's speaking these words, who's writing these words to us? Simon Peter. You remember what happened when Jesus was on trial for his life? There he is in the room with Pilate and Pilate's asking him all kinds of questions and there's Peter outside in the courtyard warming himself by a fire and all of a sudden a little girl looks at him and says, wait a minute, you're one of his disciples. I saw you with Jesus. What did Peter do? All of a sudden doing the right thing is gonna get him punished. What does Peter do? No, I don't know him. He's not my Lord. I, I, don't, I don't know who that man is. Somebody else asking me, no, I don't know who that guy is. And he swore that he did not know who Jesus was. And so when Peter says these things, he knows what he's talking about. You and I are going to mess up sometimes. Where our conscience is concerned, we're doing the right thing is concerned. We're going to mess up sometimes. You ask God's forgiveness and then you keep a good conscience from that point on. Because your conscience can be a powerful influence for what's right, for what's good. It's about making an impact. It's about having a different, making a difference in the world in which we live. Most of the time, people are going to be just fine with you living the Christian life. Think about Jesus and his ministry. Most of the time, he was popular. He could go wherever he wanted. Most of the time, he could teach who he wanted. And yeah, he had some critics and enemies here and there. But most of the time, things were, things were really good. But there came a few moments in the life of Jesus where right was wrong and wrong was right. 
and thank God that Jesus Christ always did what was right. Always. To this you were called, verse 9. You're called to be like him, to suffer like he suffered. And God can take what happens to you and what happens to me and magnify it for his glory and bring more souls to him. Make sure as a Christian, make sure that you're identifying places in your life where there are going to be challenges like this. And make sure that more than anything else, you have set apart Christ as the Lord in your heart. He is the one that you want to please. He's the one that you want to serve. He's the one whose will you're going to do no matter what. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a New Testament Christian. You want to obey the gospel. You want to serve Jesus with your life. The Bible very clearly spells out the process of how somebody who is outside of Christ comes into a relationship with him. The way this happens is by someone placing their faith and their trust in Jesus, having heard the gospel, the good news, placing their trust in Jesus. He's the one that can save me. Confessing his name before men. You know, in a, in a room like this, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, we would expect that, but that doesn't happen in every situation. You confess Jesus as the Son of God wherever you are. And the Bible says that's part of the process of becoming a Christian. And then the Bible tells us to repent of our sin. It says, turn away from the way that you've been living. I've been doing the wrong things. I want to do the right things. I want to live God's way. And then be baptized. When someone is immersed in water for the remission of their sins, that's the point at which they come into contact with the saving blood of Jesus Christ. That's the point at which their sins are washed away. And if you want to make that decision this morning, there's no better decision that you could ever make. If you're ready to respond in that way or you'd like to respond and ask for prayers, heaven's invitation is yours while together we stand and while we sing.